0: Skip Bertman was the head coach of baseball at Louisiana State University, and he had a couple of really good ball players who were holding out after their junior year to be drafted because they were, got drafted low coming out of high school, but they weren't the sharpest tools in the shed, if you know what I mean, and they were ineligible after their spring season for the following year, so they had to become eligible, so Coach Bertman whose good friend was the biology department chairman, said, I need you to hook up my boys. They just need to get their grades up a little bit so they can play next year. And he said, great, I'll do that for you. Now, the department chairman made a mistake. He put them in the ornithology class with that fresh-out-of-grad-school professor who thought that this was the most wonderful class in the world. And... Didn't like student-athletes at all. And so on the very first day of summer school for six weeks, he came out and said, Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you ornithology. Pulls down a list of 300 bird legs. And for the six weeks, they had to identify oriole, oriole, cardinal, cardinal, sparrow, sparrow, bald eagle, bald eagle. For six weeks. It came down to the final exam. And these guys thought, well, certainly, after six weeks of this, we're going to get a a, a question about birds other than their legs, right? So they sit down for their final exam. And the student athlete gets the screen pulled down. For your final exam is name all 300 bird legs. And the pitcher just said, that's it. This is stupid. This is the most ridiculous class I've ever heard in my life. What the heck? Bird legs. And the professor stood up and said, "Young man, what is your name?" I'm not gonna put up with the, that from you. And he says, "I don't know. You tell me." You know when it when it comes. To the panoply of religious views. So often we look at the world views just like we look at those bird legs. I don't know. You tell me. I'm not so sure. But Easter Sunday arrives each and every year and helps us to see clearly if we will avail ourselves to it. So this morning we're just going to look briefly at each one of the passages that were read for us. Because it's important for each and every one of us to know. And ultimately, the question that I want to ask you this morning is a question that's rather haunting. Um, and I'm, a question that seems, for the most part, to never go away. And yet, in the church, oftentimes, the answers get butchered. The question is, why are you here? And by that, I don't mean why you're here in regards to your attending Christ Church this morning. I don't want to get necessarily into that. Some of you are here because you really love the Lord. Some of you are here because of family tradition. Some of you are here because you want to get some little bit of religious fix for the morning. Some of you are here because you were invited here by a friend. Maybe you were invited by yours truly. I don't know. But some of you just want to come check it out. We're all over the map as to why we're here this morning, but I don't want to address that question in particular. I want to address, why are you here? Why do you exist? Why are you breathing? Why are you on this earth? For this answer, if you'll avail yourself to it, if you're willing to be honest with yourself, is found in the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. Because there's some problems with the way the church historically has answered that question. I've heard someone say, well, the reason we exist is because God wanted some fellowship. What you're telling me in that statement, and there's a problem with that, is God, who is all triune, all self-sufficient, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipowerful, is lonely within the Trinity, that doesn't seem to make much sense, does it? And problem number two, then, if God created us for fellowship, means that he created billions of people who don't want anything to do with him. That makes God out to be kind of stupid, right, when you think about it. So if you've got a lonely God who can't solve his own problem, how in the world is he going to step in and bring salvation for the human race? That is why the Bible doesn't answer that question that way. As a matter of fact, he he creates us for the one great reason, is to worship. And by implication, being, being created in his image, we're also created to have joy, no matter our circumstances. So we're created for worship, if you think about that. Now I know some of you hear that word, and it's been hijacked by some contemporary music worship guys. Let us stand and worship. Well, you know, we might stand and sing and worship, and some of us might worship while singing. Others don't worship at all while they're singing, and some don't even sing. And so I don't know if you can say that. No, that's not what we're talking about. When we talk about worship, that, what drives you? What, are you? what are you focused on? What are you passionate about? What do you spend your time and your thoughts and your actions among and your affections are drawn toward. See, we worship. And I have no greater proof than the last two weeks when millions of us have worshiped a bunch of 18 to 22-year-old basketball players <laughs> trusting our brackets. Right? Right? Oh, we worship. And by implication and the character and nature of God, we are also created for joy. Because God is not after your, your begrudging submission. He's after you to have great joy in your life. And so what we see in Paul's letter to the Romans, in the very first reading that we had this morning, is that we tend as human beings, because we don't run our lives under the Lord and worship the Lord in our own natural way, we tend to worship the created stuff rather than the creator himself. And Paul writes that we exchanged the truth for all they knew God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their hearts were darkening. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. And then you have the list of all kinds of things, meaning we worship the stuff naturally. That's what happens to us. We trade in the glory of God, meaning the renown and the satisfaction of knowing him and walking with him. For stuff, for things, whatever it might be. And when we do worship such false glories, what ends up happening is they don't satisfy. They can't sustain us. I grew up outside of Washington, D.C. And every time a family member or a friend came, what do you think we did? We went downtown and showed them the Washington Monument. There it is. There's a Jefferson Memorial... There's the Marine Corps Memorial, there's the Capitol, there's the White House. Can we go now? Why did I lose the wonder? I was around them all the time. We do the same thing with the lake here. Remember the first time you saw Lake Erie? You thought, wow, thank you, Lord, how beautiful. Now, eh, it's a pond, right? Because that's what happens. We're always looking for something more. We're looking for something in our own, something that will satisfy us and to have joy in despite our circumstances. And if it's not Jesus Christ, says Paul, we're missing the mark. Because this morning, we celebrate the resurrection. And we heard read for us from Bob reading the Gospel of Luke that this good news of the resurrection struck them mightily. And the reality is God was proving to himself and to you and me that this is true. This is not something you can just pass over with a Sunday afternoon yawn. It is a historical reality that we must wrestle with and deal with in our lives. Because the skeptic out there will say, Well, we don't know whether that really happened. It probably got changed afterward. Well, if I changed it afterward, would my primary witnesses be people who didn't have testimony in court? If I was going to be their representative attorney, would I want eyewitnesses that you couldn't even bring into the courtroom? No. Because that's exactly who the first eyewitnesses were. We heard their names read for us. They were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who were with them. We've come a long way, haven't we? But back then, women weren't even allowed testimony in court. And by the way, the gospel writers hardly portray the disciples the way we would want to be. If we were disciples back then, and I was talking to Luke or to Mark. I'd say, you know that, if I was Peter, I'd say, you know that denial thing? Clean that up a little bit. They didn't do that. And all their different views of Jesus are slightly different because it's credibility that they're after. So that when we read it, we see it afresh once again. That this tomb truly is empty. And if we'll think about it, reflect upon it, digest it. It's like a gigantic banner across the sky. This is true you and for me because that's exactly what he's done and so paul writing the first corinthians the very first letter that paul wrote this is written in the 50s we're talking maybe 20 years after think back to 1996 what was going on in your life in 1996 I'm, I'm sure that if you look back there's something that you can remember very vividly believe me if there was an empty tomb you would remember that And Paul doesn't write this. Go read your Homer. Go read ancient literature, ladies and gentlemen. Things aren't written with this definition back then. Because they're writing it so that we may believe. And we may know it's true. And Paul goes so far as to say, if you don't believe me, there's 500 people who saw Jesus alive. Go ask them if you don't believe me. And if it's not true, we're most to be pitied. But in fact, it is true. He says, and the reality is, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. All other world views will say, I'm not the way. The religious teachers will say, I'm not the way. Follow this way. In Hinduism, the path of enlightenment. In Islam, the five pillars of Islam. Follow these practices, and then perhaps you'll be right with the divine But I'm not the way. Jesus comes in and says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I know for some of your ears, that sounds narrow-minded. But I want to ask you who are thinking that right at this time, friends, that doesn't work emotionally and it doesn't work logically. It can't. Emotionally, if my wife had a terrible disease and we took her to the doctor, and that doctor had a wonderful cure for that disease, and we took it, what would be my response if she was made well? I would tell you about it. I would sing it to the stars. This worked! It's phenomenal! Now, would you call me narrow? Because this worked? No, you wouldn't. And it doesn't work logically either. But first, emotionally, before I leave that, there was a great example of this in the Atlantic. A magazine where an atheist wrote in it about going to school and university as an atheist. And he said, I don't have any respect for a Christian who doesn't share his faith with me. Because they either don't care for me, or they don't believe what they say they believe. I totally respect somebody who's willing to share with me. Because, emotionally, it matters. Just like the cure. It also doesn't work logically. I mean, as soon as you say, well, that's narrow-minded, you're being narrow-minded about my view itself. It's called a binary. We all have them, and we all have exclusive views. You can call me wrong. You can call me stupid. But don't call me narrow-minded. Because it doesn't work emotionally or logically. Because I grew up just like this neighborhood here in, in the West Shore. In a wonderful suburban house at the time when Fairfax, Virginia was actually the outer suburbs. There was nothing west of Fairfax when I grew up. Those of you who are familiar with the Washington, D.C. area, it's, it's on the inner side now. But back then, it took five minutes to go to the country. Now it takes an hour to go to the country. And on Friday nights, we went to high school football games. In the wintertime, we went to high school basketball games. In the springtime, we went to high school baseball games. And it was the all-American Sandlot neighborhood. It was a great place to grow up. And I grew up in a family that assumed we were Christians, but my folks taught me, it's not so matter what you believe. What matters is that you're a good person, that you live a really good life. And my passions were baseball, football, and girls, and not much more. But I realized that even those passions, as I went into my teen years, they didn't satisfy. Because I would work hard, work hard, work hard, and we'd win a championship, and then it'd be what next? We hear those stories of those great Olympic athletes who work so hard for that one event, and then they achieve the gold, and then now what? Because it doesn't satisfy. And that was my experience. Until... One Sunday night, catch this, my me and my dad are watching Little House on the Prairie. And Michael Landon and the family is sitting there in church on a Sunday morning and the preacher's preaching and dad turns to me and says, you know, we ought to go back to church. I said, you know, I'd like that. And I walked into Truro Anglican Church and those people and the ministers didn't so much talk about pointing the way to God. They didn't talk even about Living a good life, what they talked about was a living relationship with a living God. And it's out of that love that I live my life. It's out of that gospel and grace that I live my life. Because they were living their lives with great worship and great joy that I didn't have. And I discovered after a while that the salvation is not so much I did as what Jesus did. And my minister preached on Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which said, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that it is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, so that no one can boast. And I came to realize that what I believe does matter. And for to say it doesn't matter is a doctrine in and of itself. And to say that is to actually say that I don't even need a Savior That I'm not so messed up that I can pull myself up together and live a good life. And historically, that is salvation by works. But that's not what the Resurrection Sunday is all about. What it is about is he's rescued you and he's proven it by the empty tomb. Do you trust that act? And I'll tell you this. If you believe that doctrine doesn't matter and all you have to do is live a good life, number one, you'll live a life of fear and insecurity because you'll never feel like you're ever being quite good enough. Or, two, you'll be marked with pride and disdain for other people because, in your view, you actually have been good enough. Or, three, you'll be marked with devastation and self-loathing because you feel you haven't been good enough. And I oscillated between those three as a young man until I met the grace of God in Jesus. And I realize it's not about my works. It's about His for me and for you. And as I place my trust in Him, my worship is rearranged. The joy that's found in a walk with Jesus is where true freedom is found. And I find a new purpose and an assurance that no matter what happens in my life today, I can live a life of joy. And when it's all said and done, I have eternal life with him forever. See, all religions are kind of like that smorgasbord of ornithology. And they say, do this and you'll connect to the divine. But Jesus says, no, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And to know Jesus is eternal life. It's not like you do the Christian things and God blesses you and saves you. No. It's because he is the life, and you trust in him, and therefore you do the Christian things. And sometimes you fail, and he still loves you and welcomes you back, because this purpose, freedom, and assurance is offered back to you as a gift. The verse that I quoted, Ephesians two eight and nine, it says, "It's a gift given to you, and it's through faith. And faith is not how great a faith you can have, ladies and gentlemen." It's like walking out on ice. Ever, ever walked out on a frozen pond in the wintertime? You know, how do you know you can skate on it? You ever had that experience? I remember walking out on ice and my older brother just falling through and laughing at him. You know, he's trying to get out. We were so mean. <laughs> Save yourself. <laughs> but the point is, it was the quality of the ice that made him go through, or lack thereof. So you skate out on the ice, that's a quarter inch, you're not going to be held. But you have the same faith and you walk out on the ice that's four inches deep, you will be held. Because it's not, the, it's not the quality of your faith, it's the quality of the ice. And it's the same thing with our faith in Jesus. It's what he has accomplished. Not the quality of my belief in him. I don't have to stir up my faith to please him. It's just I place my trust in him because of the empty tomb. That's exactly what we do. My friends, this is no fairy tale. It's historically accurate, and it's credible. And so in closing today, I want to ask you, where are you in Jesus Christ? We tend to live our lives as if it doesn't matter. This little piece of rope right here, this represents my life. It's a little duct tape version of the rope. All right? I was born in 1962. I'm 54 years old. And if I live as long as my father, I'm going to die in 17 years. Do I have your attention? I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. Neither are you. And we tend to focus on the duct tape. That this is all that matters. And I'm going to get mine while I can get the good. Right? That's the way we tend to live our lives here in the West. And we forget that there's an eternity that is to come. And we focus on this. But the way we trust in Jesus now is going to impact forever. And I don't know about you. This is a long time. And when Jesus comes back, we're going to live physically forever and ever and ever. So are we going to waste our time in this, focusing on just here and now and our false glories? I want to encourage you, if you don't have this joy the way I'm speaking of, If your worship is misconstrued, if this Jesus hasn't changed you, I want you to look into this empty tomb with me. And it's not the quality of your faith, it's the object of your faith. And it changes everything. Because that's exactly what it did for me. I discovered from that point forward oh, I still liked baseball, I still liked football, and I still liked girls. But the reality is God brought one girl into my life to rescue me, to keep me prioritized and straight. And that no matter what happened in my life, I had a peace and joy that I didn't have before. Because I found myself changing and all of a sudden these church people that I thought were a little bizarre at first, you know, they got it right. And we could live together in, in small groups and just walk through life together and do life together. And then all of a sudden, many of my college and high school friends said, what happened to you? But they didn't say what happened to you in, 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 in a weird way. You know, they just said, you have changed, Gene. What is it? And I said, the tomb is empty. To one person, I said, Jesus. What do you mean, Jesus? Why don't you just come with me and we'll talk about it. You see, you, you think you've got to have all the evangelism plans mixed up you know, all together. You don't. The reality is the tomb is empty. And I'm pleading for your joy this morning. Because the temptation will be to walk out of this service today on this beautiful spring day and say, wasn't that nice? That was, that was just a wonderful service, right? No, friends, there's a, part, there's a chance to depart from this a changed person forever. And forever is a long time. As God stirs up in us from the wonder of the cross and the awe of the empty tomb, a new purpose, a renewed freedom, and a renewed joy. So let's pray. And I want you to encourage, I want to encourage you to pray just an amen with this prayer as we renew our faith once again in Christ. Let's pray. heavenly father we would ask that you would give us eyes to see as we leave this place ears to hear and then as we look at the smorgasbord of world views out there we would recognize that you speak with great clarity lord jesus on our behalf because it's written like none other it's recorded for us that we have everlasting life in you and there were 500 witnesses I think any attorney would love to have 500 of them in today's world. Lord, we thank you that you died for us because we needed a Savior. We're 100% sinners, and you're 100% Savior. And you came and you rescued us upon the cross, and you walked out of the grave on Easter Sunday morning so that we would know those claims are credible and we can believe in the power of the cross. Lord, help us to have hearts that are filled with gratitude by the power of the Holy Spirit. For in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said.